Well, good morning. I'm privileged to meditate on God's Word with you today, so if you'll go ahead and turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. You remember the last week, Book 3 began with Psalm 73, and we met a very perplexed author of that psalm in Asaph. He was, he was awfully troubled by the prosperity of the wicked, while the godly were met with trouble. But in the end, of course, he found his contentment in God, and Psalm 89 deals with trouble as well. And this time... The trouble is coming for God's anointed king. Psalm 89 is the last book of of Psalm, uh, of the last book, uh, the last psalm, excuse me, of book three of the Psalter. It's the last psalm of book three of the Psalter. And a man named Ethan is credited with writing this one. He might have been one of the Levitical singers who was appointed by David. Uh, He might have been a contemporary of Solomon. We're just not really sure exactly who he is. But what we're reasonably sure of is that most likely this psalm is a collection of several poems that are made into one. And so this morning we will read this very long psalm together. We'll read all of it because we don't want to miss a syllable of it all the way from the praises of God that the author has uh, for his maker all the way through to his heartfelt and agonizing prayer at the end regarding the fact that God has not yet restored the Davidic king. And so let's begin at the top. Psalm 89, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Selah, by the way, is a musical notation, most likely, which means pause and reflect. You can imagine a little musical interlude here uh, as the people worship God and reflect on what's just been said. And so continuing in verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness and the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, 
and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm before him I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him to stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. 
Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord. Well, as we take in what we've just read, as we consider all of these things, the praises and the, and the powerful lament there at the end, Let's, let's just take a little trip in our imaginations back in time. Let's use our imaginations to, to set the tone for Psalm 89. You're a Jew. You're a Jew. And all your life you've been steeped in the oracles of God. You understand that you're a member of God's chosen race. Not that there's something special about you or Israel that made God choose you. But God decided to make his promises to you. And to your people, you are intimately familiar with every single one of God's promises. You can recite by heart his covenants to Abraham and to Moses and to David. How God guarantees that Abraham's offspring is going to be a great nation and live in the promised land. And that God is going to use them to become a blessing for all the families of the earth. And you've already been a part of that blessing. The covenant that God made with Moses mediates the fulfillment of one of those blessings in in terms of Israel's obedience and disobedience when he gave the law. And you've been a part of that blessing as well. And your hope, your hope of hopes, is that promise of God to David. As God spoke through Nathan to David in 2 Samuel 7. He begins by telling how David's son Solomon is going to take over after him. And so this is what God says through Nathan, beginning in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a promise that you know by heart. But you've witnessed something terrible, horrible even. The king has been defeated and humiliated. God's anointed king in your time has been defeated somehow. The line of David's monarchy has been severely disrupted, so much so that it seems like that God has forgotten his promise. It seems like that God is being even unfaithful. And the reason it seems that way is that you are without a king. You are without a resolution to the restoration of David's throne. You are without understanding of how in the world God's steadfast love could remain in this kind of situation. And so you're craving a Messiah. You're craving a Savior King who's going to restore you and all of God's people. And all you can think of is that God's promise is going to be fulfilled through an earthly human king. A king who will defeat God's enemies. You can't imagine it any other way. And the reason you care so much about all of this is because you worship God. You love Him. You love His laws. And you love His promises. 
But God's enemies do not. They want to destroy you and your people. They want to prove that your God is useless and powerless. And if they succeed, this has deeply personal consequences for you. It means the shame of living in subjection to a pagan king who hates God. It means that your faith has been for nothing. And it means that God is unfaithful and that he is impotent and that Israel has no special purpose whatsoever, that Israel is just like all the pagan nations. And so you bow before your Lord And you pour your heart out to him. And that prayer is Psalm 89. You see, the psalmist is struggling to reconcile the seeming contradictions between what he knows to be true about God and the reality that he's living in. The king has been dethroned. God's uh, line of kings through David is discontinued. It's a shocking and unexpected turn of events. And so the psalmist is praying for God to fulfill this covenant that he made with David. Somehow, somehow, Lord, do this thing. This is similar to our struggle today, isn't it? The church seems to be on the decline rather than on the rise. We see how the world is turning against God and it feels like we're, we're down by four in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and nobody's on base, but this is no game, brothers and sisters. And so we wrestle with this question of how and when God is going to pull off his victory. And so let's take a look at this psalm. And instead of... of our custom of dividing it up into sections and giving each section a clever name that makes you impressed with your pastor's pithy proficiency at alliteration. Did you catch that? Instead of that, we're going to take a look at the major themes that just course through this psalm, and we're going to meditate on what they mean for you and me today. This psalm, you see, is tied together by a strong rope of three chords. As the author affirms and honors God in the first 18 verses, he recounts the promises of God to David in verses 19 through 37, and finally in that gut-wrenching prayer at the end, that God will fulfill his covenant. These are the chords of the rope that holds this psalm together. Number one, the steadfast love of God. Number two, the faithfulness of God, and number three, forever, forever. And so the big idea, according to the psalmist, as he looks into the future with faith, is that God's love is loyal and his faithfulness is absolute and forever somehow. He just doesn't see how, but he's praying with faith. And so our take-home lesson today is that we've got to trust God to fulfill his promises and to answer our prayers in the way that he wants to. We don't get to tell him how he's going to answer these things. He decides. And so as as we understand all of these things, as we look into these three chords that make the rope that holds Psalm 89 together, we're going to take a very close look at the very first verse of Psalm 89 because it lays the groundwork to understand the rest of it. There are other things in this psalm that we could preach long sermons about too, but we want to understand the meat and the foundation 
for this psalm, and this is how we're going to do it. So let's look at the, our first theme, the chord number one of the rope that holds Psalm 89 together, and that is the steadfast love of God. These very first words of this long psalm establish this theme as well as the other two themes of faithfulness and forever, and we're going to get to those in just a little bit. But God's steadfast love and faithfulness together are repeated in the same verses six times throughout this psalm. And they're mentioned separately once and twice more respectively. And so Psalm 89.1 begins. It says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now the first thing we've got to do is remember that Hebrew poetry depends largely on a technique called Parallelism. The parallelism introduces an idea and then expands on that idea with either similar or opposing statements about the same thing. And by the way, this is very different from being redundant. Redundancy is to repeat yourself and to say the same thing twice and to keep on saying the same thing by saying it again and then to restate the same thing by saying it again, if you catch my drift. Parallelism, on the other hand, builds with each statement. One one bit of the parallelism builds on the other. And so let's look at verse 1, and we see that we've got two very similar statements, but one builds on the other. I'll sing of the Lord's steadfast love forever, and with my mouth I'll make known God's faithfulness to all generations. The emphasis in both of these parallel statements is on the fact that God is completely and utterly reliable, right? His reliability will also last forever. The first half of the parallel statement about the steadfast love of God, that highlights his loyal love for us. The second half highlights God's fidelity, his honesty and total integrity to carry out what he's promised. So both God's steadfast love and his fidelity are what the psalmist will extol forever. And so to grasp the full meaning of the Hebrew word that we translate as steadfast love, we've got to understand three basic aspects of it. And each of these aspects is kind of like the leg of a three-legged stool. The Hebrew word is chesed, which means strength, steadfastness, and love all at the same time. It isn't just love, because we could easily romanticize love by itself, right? And we don't want to do that with God. It's not just strength either, since an unloving person can be strong. And without the leg of love, strength and steadfastness just become only a a fulfillment of a legal obligation. It becomes cold and impersonal. But in the context of the covenants that are at the heart of God's relationship to us, chesed is not just a matter of obligation, but also of generosity. It's not just a matter of loyalty, it's also one of mercy. And so like the psalmist, we're weak. And we need the protection and blessing of God, but we can't can't lay an absolute claim to that. That's because we depend on God to fulfill it, not on ourselves, not in the least. We depend on his strength. We depend on his loyalty to us and his merciful love. And so while God remains committed to his promise, he's also free to fulfill his promises however he wishes. We don't get to tell him how and when to do that. 
But at the bottom of it all, chesed, the steadfast love of God on God's part, means that his love for us goes far beyond that legal obligation. He loves us with steadfast love because of him, because of his character. He's holy. And he loves us not because a law somewhere commands him to. He loves us because of his mercy. That's what Ephesians 2.4 is about, isn't it? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with with which he loved us, he saved us. And so that's what steadfast love is. It's a loyal, committed, merciful love which God chooses how and when to fulfill. Well, now that we understand steadfast love, now we can look at how steadfast love and faithfulness are intertwined. And this is our second cord of our rope that ties Psalm 89 together, the faithfulness of God. The Hebrew word for faithfulness is emunah in Hebrew, and it means fidelity, firmness, true, honest. This adds the idea of fidelity to God's steadfast love. And so in the context of God's covenant with his people, it means that God's love is loyal and committed and merciful, and it's also true. He's not going to go back on his word, even when we're unfaithful to him and we need to be disciplined. God is firmly with us because he has promised to be. His love is true and his love is honest. He's not going to go back on his word. That's why James 1.17 says that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. This means that we can depend completely on God and what he's promised. His faithfulness is absolute. And this idea is tightly intertwined with steadfast love. And so what the psalmist is doing is using these two words together, steadfast love and faithfulness. We, we do the same kind of thing all the time in English. And there's even a word for this technique. It's called hendiadus. You can impress your friends with that later. Hendiadus. You see, when it's cold outside, uh, and then we come inside, what do we say? Oh, man, it's nice and warm in here, right? It's nice and warm. That's a hendiadus. If we said only that it's warm, we're not conveying how the warmth affects us, right? We're not uh, uh, showing how warm it is to us and and how pleased we are with it. If, If we say that it's only nice in here, I mean, the listener's left wondering why it's nice inside. Is it the decorations? Is it the coffee that's brewing that, that, that you think is nice? Or, or is it the warmth? And so to speak of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is a wonderfully clear and reassuring way for us to understand our relationship with God. God loves us mercifully and loyally. And we, we can depend on the promises that God has made to fulfill that love. And so taken together, God's steadfast love and faithfulness really describe one beautiful idea. His enduring, eternal, and loving relationship with us that is never going to be broken. So that leads us to one more strand in our rope that we need to examine. This is another major theme of Psalm 89, and it completes our understanding of our relationship with God forever, forever. The psalmist is mistakably tying forever to God's steadfast love and to his faithfulness. 
We've already seen in, in the first verse, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, how long? Forever. And with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness, how long? To all generations. That's forever, right? To all generations. Forever to us can mean a lot of things, though. We can sit in traffic forever. We can wait for the test results from the doctor forever. We can anticipate a text or a phone call forever. We can take forever to finish an exam. We can even promise to love somebody forever. But every one of those examples in our lives has a beginning and an end. Some of our forevers last only a little while. And even our promise to love forever can abruptly and suddenly end. The word for forever in Hebrew is olam, which means everlasting. And it's repeated eight times in Psalm 89, plus a few other implied references. And this is in a variety of contexts. For the psalmist, forever means forever. He's not stuck in traffic and this is going to end this is forever. When he, when he says that he'll sing of God's steadfast love and faithfulness forever, it's because God's steadfast love and faithfulness have no end. There are things in this world that are going to pass away. Not just physical things, but even spiritual things. But some things are eternal. This is what Jesus was talking about in Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And neither will God's covenant to David. Remember 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your throne, your throne shall be established forever. That's the same Hebrew word, olam. God's covenant will last into perpetuity. It will never, ever end. It's for keeps. It's permanent. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. And God's going to create a new heaven and earth. And yet God's promise to David will remain the throne of David's descendant, the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ will be there in that new heaven and earth. It will be there and it will be established for all eternity. That's awfully good news, isn't it? And it's good news because it means that God's love is loyal. It means that God's love is strong and merciful and God's love is also faithful And it's also forever. It's never going to end. And God proves all of that by keeping his covenants and by keeping his promise to David and to us, his church. And so now we've wound our rope together. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness are forever. And so now we can take a little walk through Psalm 89 and see how it ties this psalm together. We've been looking at the forever steadfast love and faithfulness of God in verse 1. In verse 2, God will forever establish his loyal love and fidelity even in the heavens. In verse 4, the psalmist recalls God's promise to establish his offspring forever. This is a recollection that's repeated two more times in verses 29 and 36. In verse 14, God's loyal love and faithfulness go before him as if they're emissaries. In verse 24, the psalmist recounts God's promise to David that his steadfast love and his faithfulness will be with him. And in verse 28, he recounts how God promises that his loyal love and fidelity to his covenant will sustain David. 
In verse 33, the psalmist recalls how God explicitly states that He will not remove His steadfast love from David or be untrue to Him, just as God spoke through Nathan in 2 Samuel 7.15, that promise to David that my steadfast love will not depart from him. And verse 37 recalls one more time that God's covenant with David will be established forever. And so the point is made, isn't it? The steadfast love and faithfulness of God is forever. Or is it? Because all that's left now is the psalmist's anguished prayer. He's looking at the contrast between the reality of his own life and all of those promises. In verse 46 and 49, he asks whether God is going to hide himself forever and where in the world God's steadfast love and faithfulness have gone. And so here you are. You're a Jew who's put your hope in the God's promise to David. But there's no king now. And it, it just seems like that all is lost, including God. Verses 38 and 39, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. That's what it seems like anyway to you. And so you plead with the Lord in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? can't stand this anymore, is what you're saying. It just seems like to you now that God's love is not steadfast. It seems like that He's not true to His Word. In fact, forever now, now just seems to be a foreboding, awful eternity of experiencing the disfavor of God instead of His love. God just seems like He's reneged on His promise. And so that leaves you feeling the desperation of the next two verses, 47 and 48. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? That's your urgent cry to God, that that he won't wait too long, that he won't wait until it's too late to save you. Only God can save you from death. You need His salvation. And only God can save His own reputation. Verses 49 through 51, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Isn't that how we feel sometimes, being followers of Christ? This is a prayer that's as relevant today as it ever was. We know the King of Kings, the psalmist didn't, but we find ourselves in a very similar situation. The work of salvation is finished, amen? But our king has not yet returned. And so just like the Jews of Psalm 89 who hoped in God's unfulfilled promise to David, that promise is not yet fully consummated for us either, even though we know the Messiah. 
God has promised another promise, hasn't he? He's promised that his king will return bodily someday to complete his plan of salvation. This is what it says in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's a promise. And we have some idea from scriptures how that's going to happen, but we don't know when, and we don't know all the specific circumstances of his return. But the promise is clear. Christ will come again, and he'll come again to establish the eternal reign that God promised to David. We just don't know when that's going to happen. And it's ironic, isn't it, that God has us land on this passage today, the day after that so many believed that Christ was coming again because they saw some alignment in the stars. A lot of people believe that. And it's a lie. This is a lie that, that comes up from time to time. People think that they know, but we don't know. And God's not going to tell us. And meanwhile, just as the psalmist saw trouble for God's people in his day, we see trouble for the church today. We see trouble for God's king because we live in a post-Christian era. According to the, the, the Pew Research Center, in another 50 years or so, there are going to be more Muslims in the world than Christians. Only 30 years from now in the U.S., There's only going to be two-thirds of our population who are going to claim to be Christians, and that's down from more than three-quarters of our population today. And it may be that by that time, if I'm still preaching, I'll be thrown in jail for preaching certain passages of Scripture because I'll be convicted of a hate crime. We don't have to look that far ahead. The faith of Christians right now is being publicly weighed against them as if they're candidates for public office or for government appointments. The world religion of self is taking over as people reject our king and they place themselves on the throne and declare their own sovereignty even over God himself as they recreate him in their own image. The church seems like it's withering away in Europe too. Leslie's mother took her on vacation a couple weeks ago to to Spain. And Leslie was just grieved that in spite of all of these incredible, beautiful cathedrals in, in every town, the place is spiritually dead. People don't know Christ. The U.S. is following in the footsteps of Europe. All to say, our Lord continues to experience a humiliation that is similar to the king in Psalm 89. People scorn him and mock him. And all of this can leave us pretty perplexed. We can look at all these things and wonder whether God is able to complete his plan of redemption because it seems like that God might be losing. Of course, we can look at our own lives and wonder the same thing. I know that there are some of us here today who are struggling with what seems to be a contrast between God's steadfast love and faithfulness and the difficult reality of our own lives. 
How can the mess of my life be reconciled to God? How can my sin really be forgiven? Will God really keep that promise? Why hasn't God fixed me or my spouse or my brother or my sister or my mom or dad or my situation? How come, God? How come, how come you wait so long to show your steadfast love and faithfulness? When can that glorious forever begin? Isn't that what we long for? Well, of course, the answer to those deep questions is that yes, and hallelujah, your sins can be forgiven by trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who know him already know that for a fact. It's true. His faithfulness is true. His steadfast love is true. And it's also true that we are forgiven forever, once and for all, by the death of Jesus Christ. All he desires of us is that we put our faith in him. But you know, I think Peter has the answer to all of those questions for us, along with what all this means for us right now, today. Here's how we reconcile this contrast between what we know about the eternal steadfast love and faithfulness of God and the reality that we live in. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 14. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Get your mind around that mystery. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And so for us to be at peace, for us to be at peace, and here's our take-home lesson, for us to be at peace means that we've got to trust that God is going to keep his promises and answer our prayers, but he's going to do it in the way that he wants to. We've got to trust him with that. And it is the rope that is made up of those three cords of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness in eternity that holds us up. It's strong enough to hold us if we'll just put our trust in Christ. It's strong enough to encourage us even in our darkest times. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. 
You see, our circumstances don't change the eternal loyal love and faithfulness of God. That the world hates Christ and us doesn't mean that God has failed. Our failed marriage doesn't even mean that God is unfaithful. Our lifelong struggles don't mean that eternity is going to be any shorter. That our Lord tarries before returning doesn't mean that we should hope in him any less. And brothers and sisters, to turn that around and put it another way, if our circumstances do diminish our hope in Christ, then we've got some serious thinking and praying and repenting to do. And that's because that means that our hope is in the world's approval instead of Christ. It means that our hope is in our husband or our wife instead of Christ. It means that our hope is in our struggles coming to an end instead of Christ. It means that we're not trusting God to finish his plan of redemption at the right time. All of this means that our hope is not in Christ. There was a time long ago when I was putting my hope in being physically healed. Many of you know that I have type 1 diabetes. Medicine can't cure it. And so if I have prayed once, I've prayed it a million times that, that God would heal me. And sometimes as I've struggled with, with God because he hasn't, I've wondered if he can really do it. I've wondered if, if God really loves me, why wouldn't he heal me? Why would he allow this thing, especially in light of his apparent promises to heal? Well, what I'm going to find out someday is that his promise to heal is true. Because if the Lord chooses, I'm going to find out the answers to why when I go over to glory to be with my king forever because I won't have diabetes then. My body's going to be healed, and so will my mind, and so will yours if your trust is in Christ. I won't ever experience sickness or sin or death or sorrow, and neither will you. That's what God has promised, and I believe him. All God wants us to do, my friends, is to put our trust in him and to learn to live in his holiness so that we're ready for our king to return. That's what Hebrews 10.23 is about. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And so as we look into the future with faith, This psalm reminds us that God's love is loyal. It reminds us that his faithfulness is absolute. And it reminds us that both of these beautiful characteristics of God are forever, somehow. We just don't know how yet. We don't know exactly how it's going to end. But we know Jesus Christ. So sometimes we might be as baffled as the psalmist is. But that's okay, because we will also have forever to sing of the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God, because our king is going to be on that throne. So as verse 52 says, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you. 
We lift your name on high because you are faithful in all of your promises. If you say it will be, it will be. And so we rejoice in that. Even though we struggle in this life, even though sometimes we we might lose sight of that, Lord, we know that it's true. And we thank you that we know that because the reason we know that is because of the blood of Jesus Christ who forgave us, which, which washed us clean, washed us clean of sin, paid our debt to you so that we have the hope of eternal life with you. Hallelujah and amen.